0: Hello there, this is Laurie speaking. I hope you're enjoying the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast. Just to let you know that this episode of the podcast was recorded before the recent awful events in Ukraine. While there is a reference to Vladimir Putin and his leadership, it's nothing in fairness particularly controversial or surprising. Nonetheless, just want to let you know so that you could frame the conversation appropriately. So on with the podcast. Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioural sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organisations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Professor Owen O'Malley. Owen is an Associate Professor in Political Science at the School of Law and Government at Dublin City University. There, he teaches politics and public policy and is the director of the BA in economics, politics and law. Owen's research specialism is Irish politics and particularly the position of the Taoiseach or Irish Prime Minister and cabinet government in Ireland. Though he also works on the Irish party system and media coverage of the Irish elections and public policy. His most recent research is on the office of the Irish Prime Minister or Taoiseach. Owen has authored over 40 articles in peer-reviewed journals, a textbook, Contemporary Ireland, published by Paul Grave Macmillan, and co-edited four other books on Irish politics. His most recent book is Resilient Reporting, media coverage of Irish elections since 1969. He's a former co-editor of Irish political studies and a regular newspaper columnist and a frequent contributor to national debates. Owen, it is great to speak to you. And good to talk to you. In a recent paper, with uh, Despina Alexiadu of the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, you take a look at the impact of strong leaders on the political parties that they lead. Perhaps we might start by defining I- exactly what is meant by the term strong leader in a political context.
1: So a strong leader of a political party is a leader who can Set out the party's policies, their priorities. Uh, will be somebody who has control of the organisation, who will be far and away above any other members, leaders within that party in terms of controlling the organisation, in c- terms of setting policy goals, uh, and policy. Uh, they'll be able to. They'll be central to the electoral strategy as well. So we'll see that it will be primarily their face on a on a poster uh and they they'll be able to bring the party in a direction that maybe the party wouldn't automatically have chosen to go in
0: okay and are there any particularly salient examples of strong leaders that you can point to
1: yeah so i mean we define a strong leader as a mix of being there for quite a long time uh so around eight or nine years uh we also had a we had used data from a an expert survey which got experts in about 12 different european countries uh, to say whether they regarded a party leader as strong or not and so but you can think of some examples and a classic example might be margaret thatcher in the uk who uh, led the conservative party from 1979 to 1990 or so uh and she completely changed she was a, quite a radical political leader obviously uh she changed the direction of the conservative party went into sorry she was prime minister from 1979 she was leader of the party from 76. uh she changed the direction of the party it had been a kind of fully signed up member of the post-war consensus in the in the uk a uh, sort of social democratic consensus Uh, She changed the policies, became much more right-wing, much more monetarist, uh, brought in deregulation and so she radically transformed the United Kingdom at the time. So she took the party in a new direction. She was obviously the person who controlled that party. After maybe up to 81, 82, after the Falklands War, she was able to take complete control. She moved a lot of the people who she had uh, had to bring into her cabinet. She she sacked many of them, uh, and the cabinet then became was 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 constructed in her image and likeness. The people who were uh, in her cabinet were true believers. They were, as she used to say, one of us. Uh, and so she was. She then took the party and the country in a kind of radical direction, uh, taking on issues that possibly nobody else would have taken on for instance minor strike deregulation privatization of a lot of the uh, state-owned industries uh and eventually she she brought in a something called the poll tax or the community charge as she called it uh, which was pro- possibly just bringing uh, the party a little too far uh, and the party had reluctantly always gone along with her but eventually i think they decided that the uh, the electoral damage that might be done by her constant move towards the right uh, was was just too great and they eventually sacked her but only after say 14 or 15 years in charge of the party and about a, a decade in charge of the country
0: when you then looked at strong leaders in various countries and contexts. So you mentioned there Margaret Thatcher, but but looking more broadly, what were the the key findings that came out of your research?
1: One of the basic assumptions behind picking a leader, uh, and very often a party or indeed a business or any organization will want to pick a leader and it's kind of assumed that a strong leader is something that's good. Uh, And we assume that a strong leader coming in will be able to take that organisation, you know, whip it into shape and to uh, and and then will leave when they leave eventually will have left the organisation in a better place than they took it on. And so again with Thatcher, you are many other uh, strong leaders, you could say that they have they've done that. They've satisfied that if you look at somebody like Tony Blair again in the UK the Labour Party was pretty weak. It had gone through a large a long number of electoral defeats and time in opposition. He took the party on a kind of a, again, a radical journey this time towards the centre, again to the right. Uh, and you might say probably left the made the party electable, just as Thatcher had made her party electable, won three elections in a row uh and so you you'd expect then that the the, the party has benefited from the strong leader so what we were interested in looking at was what happens after that strong leader has left so after they leave they will tend what what happens to to the party and so we collected data from about 12 countries uh, and looked at, defined which which parties had strong leaders and which ones didn't. Uh, Looked a bit over time, over about 20 years or so. And we saw that after a strong leader leaves, they're essentially a kind of a hard act to follow. Uh, Nobody is going to look quite as radical as them. Uh, Maybe the organisation that they have has been sort of moulded in their image and likeness. And it's very difficult for somebody coming in after a strong leader to maybe they don't know what direction the party should go in. So again, for instance, uh, John Major, when he took over the Conservative Party after Margaret Thatcher, there was no clear direction of travel for the party, which way it it should go. Uh, Thatcher, because of her dominance within the party, had managed to quell a lot of the internal divisions about issues such as membership of the European Union. Uh, when she left, Major is left with a party that had had, had these divisions suppressed, but uh, didn't um, they didn't go away. And, and so they all emerged, and the issue of Europe becomes a, a major fight within the Conservative Party. At the time, he had he was not seen. He was seen as somebody who was kind of anti-Thatcher in many ways, not seen as pushy, dominant, uh, and so he was kind of chosen for that role. But that also brings difficulties in that a lot of the kind of people around him were then becoming a little pushier and had sort of had a bit more bravery than they did under Thatcher when Thatcher was in, they never really spoke out against her. uh, Whereas with Major, the party seemed utterly divided because everybody was willing to uh, say their piece and object to anything that they felt they didn't like him doing. And so when when the strong leader leaves, what we see is that there tends to be a kind of a rapid succession of turnover. And so again, uh, what we saw in the Conservative Party and arguably in the Labour Party in the UK as well, uh, we see that the Conservative Party went through a succession of leaders. Now Major did win an election, but after Major retired in ninety seven, you had about three or four uh, leaders in quick succession, all of them unsuccessful. And it, it was probably about 20 years after Thatcher left, before the Conservative Party got back into power and was in a sort of reasonably good shape. And even then, it was it only managed to get into a coalition government. Again, if you look at the Labour Party in the UK after, after Blair, Gordon Brown comes in uh, and then loses an election. And then again, there's another series of leaders who are there for short periods of time. Uh, and we argue that a lot of that is due to the strong leader what they did when they were in office and so strong leaders when they're in office very often will personalize the kind of bureaucracy so in the UK in the Labour Party there used to be the party conference used to be something that was very important decision-making office Uh, but the what we saw that was replaced with was uh, sometimes called uh, the kind of the uh, sofa diplomacy and so everything happened on Tony Blair's sofa. All major decisions were made. He would have he brought all decision making into a kind of a much smaller personalised group of people who were close to him and looked like him uh, and sounded like him. And so there weren't that many people who were from the different factions within the party. Uh, and one of the advantages of having factions that are willing to speak out and talk Is that you have possibly have better decision making. And so, for instance, one of you know, Blair was in many ways a very successful leader, but one of the failures of one of his decision making failures was probably the Iraq War. It was what ultimately cost him his leadership and probably has cost him uh, a lot in terms of his, his ongoing reputation. That decision was made in a room by him and his close advisors and things like the organisations such as the Foreign Office and the Foreign Secretary were not as closely involved there as you would have expected to. Same we see with, say, somebody like Thatcher. All the decisions are made in Number 10, around Number 10, and there was a weakening of the different, uh, the different people. There aren't the sort of factions representing, say, the left of the Conservative Party or the centre of the Conservative Party, that are able to stand up to her, question her decisions. And because those decisions aren't being questioned, they're not really being tested as much as they possibly should be. And so some poor decisions kind of sneak through, which will ultimately cost the party, uh, will deliver some sort of reputational damage to the party.
0: Okay, interesting. I'm conscious that the examples you've given have been um, very UK centric when you were looking at the, uh, the historical record so to speak did you see any notable variations across different countries or different contexts or settings
1: yes yeah, so what you tend to see is that strong leaders tend to emerge in certain types of countries so in southern european countries they are you were much more likely to see a strong leader it will depend on on say the political the Political types are the type of political system, uh, so the electoral system is going to be important. So, in a place like the UK, it's possible for strong leaders to dominate because you only need sort of 35 40% of the national vote in order to achieve an overall majority. The same tends to be true in, say, Spain, Portugal, Greece, uh, places like that. So, you tend not to see stronger leaders emerge these kind of dominant leaders who say by force of personality are able to kind of take over their party and control their government say uh, they tend not to emerge in in countries in northern europe although that's not always the case um, but you tend not to see strong leaders come in emerge in places like the netherlands in belgium for instance uh, whereas you do tend to see them emerge in places like the uk Uh, in say Greece, in Spain, Portugal, places like that. And then uh, outside of Europe, you will tend to see these kind of strong leaders emerge in other places such as in in Central and South America, they're much more common.
0: I'm conscious as well that you've looked at strong leaders primarily in in terms of say democratic settings, and and obviously there are variations in terms of voting systems and so on that you referred to there. But how would the strong leaders that you are looking at differ from, for example, autocrats or, or dictators, particularly in terms of the impact that they might have?
1: So the autocrats and dictators, obviously, we do see strong leaders in autocratic and dictatorship. That's almost definitionally true. <laughs> uh, but what it differs across these types of regimes in or within, sorry, these types of regimes. Uh, will be the extent to which power is personalized Uh, and so in some countries the party will still be really important and so for instance the in the Soviet Union the communist party was always incredibly important and maintained a a check uh, was maintained as a check on a strong leader emerging after Stalin obviously and and so we we could see that there was some sort of bureaucracy there within the party structure that was maintained, even though it's not a not a democracy. The bureaucracy there still does manage to kind of keep a check on the leader. Whereas, and that is distinct from personalist uh, regimes. So we can think of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, for instance. Uh, or indeed in kind of quasi-democracies you think of somebody like Viktor Orban in Hungary uh, where they have really taken control over the, the party and uh, we can probably see it with President Xi in China as well where again he is taking much more power suppressing a lot of the debates within the Chinese Communist Party uh, suppressing alternative leaders from emerging and that's a key a key factor in in how you damage your organisation if you don't allow talent to emerge, and so very often these strong leaders will be scared of you know new talent which could emerge and might threaten their leadership in the future, and so will tend to put them down. And that's something you can see with Angela Merkel in the CDU in Germany. They uh, she was always able to uh, to. Um, prevent alternative leaders from emerging. And so good talent was stopped, uh, stopped coming through. And so perhaps one of the reasons that the CDU did so poorly in the recent federal elections in Germany was because there weren't these alternative leaders that had been allowed to emerge. She had kind of more or less dismissed many of them. So you, we distinguish then it, between personalist regimes and between kind of bureaucratic regimes. And those ones where, even if it's a dictatorship or an authoritarian regime, those ones that have a bureaucracy under it uh, will probably stop a single individual from from gaining too much power with, within that country. And so when we what we see when you do have a personalist regime, when that leader leaves, uh, very often the party or the organization, or in the case of an authoritarian regime, the country may just fall apart because it was the political skills of that strong leader who was able to keep the whole thing together and without them uh, there is no bureaucracy that kept it together without that individual being there what we tend to see is that the, the organization collapses or the country collapses
0: and it's interesting you mentioned the, the soviet union in that context because i think from for my own personal experience uh, spending time in the baltics and and, and in russia uh, ever i think since the the collapse of the soviet union there has been that call at least in some sectors for a strong leader to emerge and then obviously we saw someone like putin uh, emerge and, and and slip very nicely into that role within a russian context is that a fair assessment
1: yes so i mean very often countries um, peoples want. This strong leader, they romanticise the idea of a strong leader. But what, I suppose what will be interesting to see is when Putin leaves, what happens to uh, Russia? I mean, his party as such is personalised, so you'd expect to see the party will collapse uh, because it doesn't have him as, as its leader. And it'll, it'll be interesting then to see also what happens to the country. Has it become dependent on him? His sort of historical knowledge, his institutional knowledge, and without him, then will it will it struggle to uh, to function in in, a, in many ways.
0: And what about someone like Trump? Uh, I know you mentioned there that strong leaders, by definition, if I understood correctly, are in power or in their roles for uh, eight or nine years, at least. Trump obviously a much shorter period, but is still having a very strong influence on the Republican Party in the United States. Would he fit into that uh, paradigm of a strong leader?
1: He would certainly want to, I think. Uh, And yeah, so Trump was only in office for four years. But I mean, the the US political parties are funny organisations. They're very loose. They're not at all bureaucratic. They're very personalised. And so you can see he has maintained a certain degree of control over the party. If he kind of says jump you'll see a series of republican leaders within congress uh, kind of saying how high do you want me to jump mr trump uh, and so he probably does fit into that again the nature of u.s politics is very personalized and so the you have this sort of court uh sort of system where a, everything happens in the court of Trump or in the court of Obama or maybe Biden, where, you know, people are really trying to get closer and closer to, to the monarch, almost, uh, and so there is no bureaucracy. And so it is a place that does give itself to these sort of strong leaders uh, and to personalised leaders and everything you know everything is in when ronald reagan is in power you know uh, he is the sun around which everything uh, rotates Uh, when trump is in power he is he is the star around which everything uh, rotates Uh, and so yes you do see that he probably does satisfy that idea of of a strong leader yeah
0: okay do you feel that this process that you're Describing is inevitable with a with a, a strong leader, or are there perhaps cases that you can uh, mention where someone, a strong leader, has left their party actually in a in a better place than when they became the leader, and, and didn't have that, you know, for example, twenty year um, difficult period that, for example, the Tories had in uh, the UK after Thatcher.
1: Yeah, so I mean, we can see. Uh, with somebody, you know, very often strong leaders are also good leaders in that they want to improve their party organisation. And in Ireland, there was a leader of Fine Gael, Gareth Fitzgerald, who uh, became leader of the party in 1977 and immediately started to uh, make it more professional. He professionalised the policymaking structure. He professionalised the electoral areas. Uh, he brought in a lot of new talent uh, he made the party very electable and it got its best uh, its best ever showing under him he governed admittedly not terribly successfully for for a couple of periods uh, and so he was somebody who probably didn't want to be a str- he wanted to get his way but he was also not afraid of new talent uh, he was probably he had an advantage in that he was much older than all of the other people in his governments, and so he um, he was kind of automatically kind of looked up to as as a father figure. But he he and he treated them more or less like a good parent might, encouraging their talents, encouraging them to try new things, and so he did all the things that you'd expect a strong, good leader to do. But still. When he left, party was in disarray for about 20 years, and about, uh, say, 16 or 17 years after he left, it had its worst ever performance, and people were actually talking about whether it could survive as a party again. So I've I've been thinking about, you know, trying to identify these good, strong leaders, but they still seem to leave uh, an organization even if the organization is in a stronger position possibly because they have been so dominant a uh, that the party kind of has has learned the organization has learned to live with them and can only live with them around and then struggles afterwards to uh, and so in for instance in garrett fitzgerald's case in ireland as leader of Fine Gael, he left behind there were about three or four you know potential leaders and possibly who he had sort of thought will let that kind of competitive struggle and they will they'll fight for the leadership of the party and the best person should win out. But, you know, what actually happened was that there was just a series of uh, factional disputes in the party for the next 15 or so years.
0: What would that then suggest? So if you were, for example, advising a political party, would you say there are things that they could or, or, or perhaps should do to, to better manage leaders and, and, and themselves to survive strong leaders?
1: Yes, yeah, so you'd, you'd expect to see that there will be a relatively strong bureaucracy, that there will be checks on the leader that the leader can't just sort of get up in the morning and think, oh, I think I'm going to introduce policy X and for that to just happen. There need to be some sort of checks on the leader. There needs to be some way of facilitating strong debate with the leader there. Uh, And so you have kind of this robust debate which allows a strong leader's ideas to become, uh, to be challenged and to prevent those strong leaders from going a little too far. you know, I I think sometimes with strong leaders, it's a little bit like over-investing in, in something. You know, you, you spend money on, say, tulips or or whatever, and they give a great return. And so just like that, you are spending money, uh, you're investing in your leader. And you've invested in this leader and the electoral returns have been strong. And so then you kind of think, oh, I'll invest some more in this leader. And then eventually you just tell the leader you can just do whatever you want. Uh, and a bit like, uh, say, financial investments, uh, you can overinvest. Uh, you can put too many resources, give too many things to, see too much power to that leader, and it could, it can then uh, backfire in that that overinvestment uh, will enable that leader to go a bit too far in a certain policy direction, or they'll go too far in terms of. Uh, dismantling the organisation, uh, the kind of bureauc- bureaucratic organisation uh, and so that party then will struggle to, to recover after they've left and so you don't want to over depend on this strong leader, you don't want to over invest in that strong leader in terms of allowing them to get whatever it is they want and so if you do have a strong leader, somebody who is uh, instinctively a kind of a dominant personality at the head of an organization you do still want to be able to um control them and to be able to kind of slam on the brakes if they if they go too far uh too quickly
0: i'm conscious obviously that you're a political scientist but if we were to think more broadly about strong leaders in other contexts for example in business or maybe higher education not-for-profits charities and so on are there parallels that can be drawn Uh, Have there been similar experiences in those other contexts that you can point to?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, if you think about a business or an organization, are there people who have really, by force, their strong personalities, taken control of that organization, uh, maybe removed some of the bureaucratic structures in that organization, and got people to go to places that they wouldn't have otherwise gone? if you look at a, a company such as Enron where Ken Lay was you know a, a kind of dominant personality the smartest guy in the room he brought in people like him uh, he was able to get a lot of people who shouldn't have to break the law essentially and so accountants and auditors signed off on things that they shouldn't have signed off on and it was probably by dint of his you know strong leadership and strong personality that you know everybody thought that this was it was all going to be go well because we've invested in Kenley he's it's all worked out swimmingly so far so why should it why should it stop and so then they they do they engage in illegal practices then uh, which ultimately destroys uh, that company and again you, if you think about a lot of sports management and so i mean if you look at, think about olympic councils in different countries. If you look at something like uh, Set Blatter in football, uh, they, they have been able to control a uh, organisations very tightly. Again, their personality seems to be very important. They're politically very aware, they know exactly what who needs what and how to how to get the various different organizations that make up say FIFA. And how to how to deliver for these people, and then you know when Blatter leaves, it's exposed that there was widespread corruption in the organisation and huge huge problems there, uh, and while the the organisation didn't collapse, uh, it suffered a lot of reputational damage and probably uh, uh, some financial damage as well by his being there, and there there will be. And I'm sure most listeners will be able to immediately think of examples in in business, in NGOs, in universities, for instance, where where these strong leaders have come in and they've gotten away with things that probably we frankly shouldn't have allowed them to get away with. Uh, And when they leave, then the sort of damage that they've done is is exposed.
0: Okay, that makes uh, makes a lot of sense. If people wanted to find out more about your research, Owen, is there anywhere particular they can go?
1: Uh, so this paper we have just uh, published in the European Journal of Political Research. So I think if you, if you were to uh, uh, Google leadership dilemma and EJPOR, it, uh, it would come up. And myself and my co-author uh, Despina Alexiado are also working on a book where we're going to look at about nine or so case studies from from politics but also from business and so if anybody has good cases that they want to suggest'd i be happy to hear from them
0: I'll make sure I include a link to uh, to the article in the, the show notes Professor Owen O'Malley of Dublin City University thank you very much for your time thank you you <laughs> La La, La song and Dream Sequence by Lorenzo's Music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license.